morning to the letter of First John. And then when you're there, please, uh, please stand with me, and I'd like to read this text together in unison. The scriptural unit of thought goes from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, all the way through to John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. So we'll read that as one complete thought. Join with me, if you will, in unison in reading. 1 John, 3, or 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3. And now, little children... Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See, Father, it's given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we delight to come before Your Word again this morning, and we've rejoiced in Your Word and in Christ and the Gospel this weekend, and make our joy complete this morning as we consider the great act of our Savior to return, to appear, and to bring His saving work to a grand and glorious completion. Father, may we set our hope in Him. Teach us to do so this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. One of the main themes in the letter of 1 John is the theme of confidence. The apostle in this letter invites us to enjoy the gift of confidence. He talks about confidence in respect to belonging to God, having confidence that we are His, that God belongs to us. He tells us that this confidence before God comes from knowing that we are in fellowship with Him, that this confidence is a complete source of joy to us. To know that we are in an unending, imperishable, undefilable, if I can use that made-up word, unfading relationship with God and to enjoy it brings us complete confidence and joy. The Apostle John points to confidence in several texts of 1 John. Let me just point them out to you. First is the one we looked at this, we're looking at this morning, 1 John 2.28 says, Now little children abide in Him so that when He appears you may have confidence at His coming. So there's, John talks about confidence at the second coming of Christ. In chapter 3, in verse 21, he talks about confidence in our relationship with Him. He says there, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Having confidence that God is ours, that we are His, and that He hears us. Chapter 4, verse 17 speaks of another confidence. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. John talks about a confidence standing before God under His judging, scrutinizing gaze that we could actually know a confidence even then. And 1 John 5.14 is a final reference to the word confidence. He talks about confidence in prayer. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Well, this confidence that I would like to address today is the confidence that John is talking about when we think about and anticipate the coming of Christ that is appearing. 
Wouldn't you like to have a shameless confidence toward Christ at His coming? That's a very valuable confidence. I wonder how many of us this morning think about the second coming of Christ and if we're honest in our hearts, kind of shrink away in shame a little bit, wondering what that day will be like. Notice this in verse 28, so that we may not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What is this confidence? What is that? If we were to define the word confidence, freedom to speak, freedom to be plain and open, that's how, that's how this word is defined in, in this letter, to have candor, even to be bold or shameless, it's how a child would be running in to see their father or their parent, their mother. Every one of us, whether we realize it or not, at some point in our lives wrestle with a sense of confidence before God. You don't raise your hands, but I wonder how many have ever doubted their salvation. Am I, am I truly who I think I am before God? And then we think about His return at any moment, and we think, am I ready? Will I be prepared? Am I, am I going to be able to stand confident before the Lord at His return? Complete freedom and boldness to draw near and be real in the presence of God is what we long for. But we do not come from the womb with that sort of confidence toward God, do we? In fact, we could say this, from the beginning, our confidence toward God has been destroyed. And the Bible tells us how it's been destroyed. Shame, this text alludes to it. We have shame sometimes at His coming. What is the shame? Well, it's a desire to hide It's the exact opposite of confidence, a desire to hide, a desire to cover, to run, because we know that we have fallen short of certain expectations, because we know that the one whose expectations we have failed to fulfill will likely judge us or punish us or victimize us in some way, whether it's small or great. That's the sense of shame. So we cover, we're not real, We, we don't want people to see who we really are. And that sense of shame began when? in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? With Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they tried to hide from God. And now that sense of shame, trying to cover ourselves in some way from the one who's judging us, seeing who we really are, that's intrinsic to the sinful nature that all of us have inherited from Adam and Eve. Can you imagine then being completely confident at the coming of Christ just as you are? The words for Christ's return that John has here when He appears at His coming, these are classic New Testament words that they mean to become visible. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, He is going to return physically, visibly, a full manifestation of His divine glory. And to come near He's going to come near. That's the coming, that word there. Parousia, He's coming near. He's coming close. He's going to come alongside of us. He is going to live among us. That's the physical presence of Jesus Christ. And that reminds me, honestly, of John's words in Revelation concerning the coming of Christ. Let me read it to you. Revelation 1, 12-18. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, white snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But 
He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So the question is this. How do we acquire confidence at the thought of the coming of such a presence? How can we have this kind of confidence in our lives post-fall, post-shame, post-guilt? Well, we need to know that God loves us even though we do not presently measure up to His standards. This is what the Gospel teaches us. And we need to know that we will be treated as individuals who do not measure up as if we did measure up. And we need to know that we will be made to measure up by an amazing work of transformation. And that's really what John lays out for us in this text. So many people try to deal with their shame on their own. How do they do it? Well, one way people do it is by denial, right? They, they deny their personal sinfulness. They pretend it doesn't exist. They make themselves out to be better than they actually are. In fact, none of us really understands how sinful we are personally. God is alone the one who understands that. Denial of, the other way to do that, you might deny your own sin, but the other way people want to cover in shame and deal with their shame in in an unbiblical way is to then deny the existence of God or to make God to be someone that He is not. Someone who doesn't care much about sin. Some people can't seem to deny their sin or deny the existence of God, and so they do it another way. They try to compensate. They try to be good enough. They try to do more good. They they live out of guilt, trying to think through what they can do to make God appeased. And some of those who are working so hard to appease God, they still do not feel free. Their conscience is not cleansed. And so they begin to exercise self-deprivation, even self-punishment. False religions are built on these sorts of methods. But they never attain true confidence before God. They are futile efforts. And actually, our guilt is increased when we try to measure up to God's law on our own. Guilt and shame is increased even more when we realize how offensive it is to God and how we, how do, how we buy off His justice by some little behaviors. It's as if you know, someone murdered a beloved family member of yours and then shows up every day after that at your front door trying to cut your grass, give you groceries, shovel your walk, and hope that you'll feel better about the great sin that they have committed against you. Do you see what I mean? That doesn't do any good. So how can we have this confidence? And John tells us here how we can have confidence at the appearing of Christ. Look what he says. And now, little children, abide in Him. And the result of that, why should I abide in Him? So that when He appears, we may have confidence. That's the summary of this whole text. Abide in Christ. And that will give you confidence. Little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, you may have confidence and not shrink away from Him at His coming. But the question comes then, what? What does it mean to abide in Him? What does that mean? John uses this word fairly often throughout his writings. His gospel, he talks about abiding in Christ. In these letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he talks about abiding in Christ. What does it mean? The simple definition to abide is to remain, to continue, to stay. Another definition we could use would be like to continue being, to endure, uh, to survive even, to live to continue living. And John uses this term, abiding in Christ, to refer to the relationship that the children of God, right, little children, to the children of God have with the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. In fact, John illustrates this relationship in his gospel 
with the vine and the branches. Do you remember this in John 15? The vine and the branches. As the branches are to the vine, so the children of God are to the Lord Jesus Christ. Branches exist and live and grow and bear fruit because they are connected to the vine and share the life of the vine. Children of God are born into God's family and are alive spiritually and grow spiritually and bear fruit because they are spiritually connected to Jesus Christ and share His life. What do we call this in Christian thinking? Union with Christ. That's what this is. Spiritual, real union with Christ. Union with Christ is the substance of your salvation. It's the reason we have spiritual life. Just like vine and branches, we're united to Christ. All that Christ is and He... All that Christ is and has, He shares with us spiritually through that union. The New Testament delineates the numerous spiritual blessings that are ours because we're united to Christ. Regeneration or spiritual life. Adoption, being called sons and daughters of God. Heirs of God. We have justification. We're credited with Christ's righteousness. Sanctification. We're changed into Christ's likeness. Glorification, we're completed in our salvation. All of these happen in the lives of the children of God. Why? Because they're united to Christ. That's salvation. We share His life. We share His righteousness. We share His relationship with God the Father. We share His likeness and His glory. So when John says, abide in Him so that you may have confidence and not shame at His coming, the first thing he means for you to do is to be mindful of who you are already. You're a branch. Christ is the vine. Be mindful of your union with Christ and all the things that God the Father, the vine dresser, as he's called in John 15, has done, is doing, and will do in your life through your union with Christ. To depend upon Christ because you are alive in Him. To rest in Christ because He sustains you. To trust in Him because you are united to Christ. Listen to John word, John's words. John 15, 1 and verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But also, if what I have already described for you is a passive aspect of abiding in the vine, just being, living, resting in your union with Christ, there's also an active part of this that John invites us to. It's a vibrant trust. It's not a lazy trust. It's a living dependence. It's not passivity. It's a feeding faith. It's a watchful hope. In other words, you keep on receiving life from the vine by feeding on His Word. You keep trusting in Christ by knowing Him and all of His saving work and love for you. You keep on depending on Him in prayer, asking Him to do all that He promises to do. You keep on hoping in Him that He who began a good work will bring it to full bloom in your life. You don't let up looking to Christ. It begins the day you're justified and it continues right on into heaven, right? You keep seeking. Jesus said it this way in John 15, 7-11. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. Abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
So what does John mean by abiding in Him so that we can enjoy a confidence and not afflicted by shame at His appearance and coming? Here's, here's how I'd summarize this in, in, in the way that we would say it. Keep on actively trusting and hoping in Christ as your life in order to overcome that shame and have confidence at His return. Keep actively trusting and hoping in Christ as your life in order to overcome shame and have confidence at His return. That's what John says. Abide in Him. Now, to help us trust in this way, John points out what God has already done in you, what God is doing in you, and what God will do in you because of your union with Christ. This is what this text is covering. And we could state it this way. How do we keep trusting and hoping in Christ? How are we to be actively abiding in Christ so that we have confidence? And he gives three specific ways throughout this text to be actively abiding in Christ. So number one this morning, if you wanted to take some notes, you can. Number one, be assured of the purifying power of the new birth. That's the first thing. This is how you abide in Christ. Be assured of this. Think of the Gospel and be assured of this. This is what God has already done in you through your union with Christ. By reminding of yourself of this, by being assured of this and keep trusting in this, you'll have confidence for the day of Christ's return. Be assured of the purifying power of the new birth. This is verse 29. If you know that He is righteous... You may be sure, that's where I get the idea of being assured, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Let's take this thought in two parts. First, you know that God is righteous. What does it mean when we say that God is righteous? What does John mean? To say that God is righteous, I think we first can understand something, that God is good. God is good. This is the logical first order of God's moral attributes. He is good. He's perfectly good. To say that He is good, as one writer would put it, that God is the final standard of, of goodness. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Another writer defined God's goodness in this way. He said that God is the perfect sum, source, and standard for himself and his creatures, of that which is wholesome, conducive to being, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. God is perfectly good. Completely good. That's why John wrote in 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That is the same time the most wonderful reality and the most terrifying reality, as Ben was talking about yesterday. It is the most wonderful reality in the universe because that means God perfectly governs His universe according to His goodness. He cannot ever govern in such a way that isn't good. Everything He makes, everything He does is only good like Himself. He will never do any moral evil. He, he can never be corrupted by any evil. And yet, this is the most terrifying reality in the universe for us as human beings because we are what? We're not good. We've taken God's goodness, reflected in our own creation, and we've perverted it. We've rebelled against God's goodness. We have sinned against Him. We're by nature and by desire and by action the very opposite of good. That's how we're born into the world. And so since the fall, we have become, by our own choice, the enemies of the one who is perfectly good. And that's not a nice place to be in. Now this is where God's righteousness becomes especially clear. If you know that He is righteous, here's what this means. He will never act outside of or in contradiction to His nature. He is righteous. His own actions will always conform perfectly to His goodness. That means His governance of us, His creatures, will always be conformed to His goodness perfectly. This is why He has given to us a perfect standard of His goodness. What is it? The Ten Commandments, right? That's, that's God's goodness right there. Perfection. 
And that's why he calls us to conform to that standard, but we don't. God is righteous. John says this. John, 15, or John 17, 25, Jesus prayed, O righteous Father. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, Jesus Christ is called the righteous one. And that not only refers to God's actions within himself, but also his actions toward us. He will be righteous toward us. He will be perfectly good toward us. And the reason why that's terrifying is is that God reveals his just actions toward us because we have broken his standard of goodness and are therefore unrighteous. How must the God of perfect goodness and righteousness behave toward what is rebellious, sinful, evil? If God always conforms perfectly to his law in response to law-breaking, then he is going to deal with it in divine justice. That's what perfect goodness does all the time. He will not be bought. He'll not be corrupted. He won't overlook anything. He will never undermine. He will reward righteously. He will punish perfectly. He is good. And the Bible tells us that there is no one who does good, not even one, right? Romans 3.10. And that the, the Bible also tells us that God alone is good and does good. Luke 18.19. So if that's the way things are, what hope do we have of confidence before Him? Right? That's the point. If God is good, if God is righteous in dealing with what isn't good, then what hope do we have? And John puts forth to us the hope then of the new birth. If you know that God is righteous, there's something else. Or you could say, since I know that God is righteous, there's something else you can be assured of that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. John wants us to see that the new birth and God's righteousness being produced in people's lives are inseparable. This means that there's no way for a person to have any righteousness in their lives apart from the new birth. That's true, right? I can't be right. I can't be good at all unless I am born of God. But it also means that as sure as God is righteous, so surely will righteousness begin to be present in the lives of everyone whom he gives the new birth. And there's real hope for us. To be born of God through union with Christ means that we share His righteousness. God graciously shares His nature with us through the new birth. Jesus spoke about the powerful work of the new birth to change people in John chapter 3. Remember the time where He met with Nicodemus? You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. But that new birth is going to change you. It's like the wind. You can't control it. You can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going. You can't tell what's going to happen next. But you can see its effects. Like the wind, right? You can see what happens. It blows the trees around it. It, it, it destroys even. So it is with the new birth. The Spirit of God. You don't know when it's going to take hold of someone. You can't predict that, but you can see the change it creates. Peter said the same thing. Having purified your souls, 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. These dear brothers and sisters in Christ could love one another. Why? Because they were born again. James says the same thing. Of his own will, he brought us forth with the word of truth. And that makes us to become the first fruits of his creatures. The first hint of complete change in the universe. Change happens when God births people. Titus says, Titus 3, 3-7, through we ourselves were once foolish. That's the story of, of all of us born into the world as sinners. Disobedient led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. That's not how we stayed though, right? But 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, dear ones, we have confidence toward the coming of Christ this morning because through our union with Christ, God has given us new birth. And being born of God, we now know that we have God's, this is what the Scripture says, this is an amazing phrase, we have God's spiritual seed in us. And that has begun to produce and will continue to produce His righteousness in us. That's guaranteed. Everyone who's born of God will be being prepared for the second coming by the very righteousness of God that we know He possesses. And God's righteousness will continue to grow in everyone who is united to Christ and born of God until they reflect His righteousness perfectly. And John says this, right? You may be assured of this. You can be sure about this. That's the beauty of salvation. It's not about you and what you can do for yourself. It's what God is doing in you through the new birth. He'll get you ready. If He has begun spiritual life in you, He'll finish it. Secondly, this morning, how do we abide in Christ? First, remember the purifying power. Be assured of the purifying power of the new birth. But secondly, see the purifying power of God's adopting love. This is verses, this is verse 1. See the purifying power of God's adopting love. This is a fantastic verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. What's the command here? There's a command here, isn't there? What is it? See! That's something very interesting. You didn't have to tell your kids this morning to get up and see, did you? God has to tell us to see, though, doesn't He? Look at this. That's what God is saying. Behold this, some texts have. Look at this. Spend time gazing at this. Take this into your eyes. Turn off the TV and look at the gospel, right? See this. Let it fill your heart. This is, this is similar to what Paul prays about in Ephesians 3, 14-19. He prays, he says, I want you to know the length and the depth and the breadth and the height to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants His children to spend time seeing His love for them in the gospel. That's how you can have confidence at His coming. Isn't that the way it is with children and, and parents? Right? How, do our parents how, how do our children grow confident with us and, instead of you know, shut down and quiet? It's when they see our love for them. Isn't it? That builds That's the same way as with, with us and God. Behold this. Keep trusting. Have confidence. Listen, being born of God does not mean that God gives us spiritual life and then leaves us as orphan babies to care for ourselves, to feed ourselves, to protect ourselves, to guide ourselves. No, He is our new, caring, nurturing, loving Father. A new family bond has been made, and it'll last forever. He will continue the work of righteous change in our lives because we're His adopted sons and daughters. He loves us. He will develop the righteousness that He's begun to impart in us through our union with Christ. And so to abide in Christ means to set your hope on that, to set your trust on the Father's adopting love. Put your dependence on it. See its purifying power. See it for what it is. So John shows us a bit of that. First of all, see what your Father's adopting love is like. See what it's like. And he says, see... What kind of love the Father has given to us? What kind of, or really a literal translation would be, how great, see how great a love this is. 
The Father's love is great in so many ways. He's generous with it. He's not stingy. It never comes to an end. He keeps giving it to you. It's not, it's not trickling. It's abundant. It's overflowing. It's a love of great overflowing quantity, but also it's rich in quality. It's not cheap. Do you remember the cost of the Father's love? He sent His own Son to die for you. The brand of love you've been given in Christ is, is God-originated, not man-made. It's divine, perfect love, and God has given it to us, this great love. He's given it. It's a gift of grace. That makes this great love. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's not even solicited by us. It's not initiated by us. We know this from 1 John chapter 4. We love why? Because He first loved us. It's given in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. This makes God's adopting love great. Romans 5, 6-10, For while we were still what? Weak. God loves us when we're weak. At the right time, Christ died for the what? Ungodly. He loves us when we're weak. He loves us when we're ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That makes His love great. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were still enemies, I am weak and God loves me. I am ungodly and God loves me. I am a sinner and I am an enemy and that's when God loved me. And the same is true for you if you're a child of God. That makes His love great. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son to the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you know what? This Father's love is greatly given because it's an endless love. It's not a temporary gift. It doesn't take it back. It's eternal. This is a permanent arrangement that God has set in place. Nothing can ever sever from us from His love. Romans chapter 8 tells us. He does not regard, or He does not regret. He doesn't regret that He loves you. You ever think that? Oh, God's fed up with me now. No. That's not, that's not God at all. He doesn't love you because of you. He loves you because of who He is. His love is so great that way. He, rejo he rejoices that He has given His love to you. He's not disappointed that He has given His love to you. He's not frustrated by our failures. He's rejoicing that He has given His love to us because He intends to complete His plans in our lives through the working of His love for His own glory and for your joy. This is... This is God's great love. Again, our Father's love is not dependent upon us and what we do. It's dependent upon who He is and what He's purposed to do in us for His glory. And the Father's love is based on what He has already done for us in Christ. Now, one of the most glorious aspects of the Father's love given to us is that He adopts us. Look what it says here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That what? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. John uses this title, children, 13 times in this book. And by that title, he was certainly expressing his own love for his churches that he's writing to. But Jesus used that title for John and other disciples as well. And so by using that title, children, I think John also wanted to reflect God's fatherly love toward those to whom he was writing. He wanted to remind them that they have been loved by God as a father. They are adopted as God's children. And John speaks of this, speaks of this relationship explicitly right here. God has determined to make sinners like us His own children. Everyone whom the Father causes to be born again, He calls child. He gives us the right to become children of God. John 1.12 Our Father's love is given to us a right. That's interesting. The authority. The authority to be called, to become His children. And in reality, that is who we are. That's your identity. 
Do you think of yourself as that? You know, sometimes when we're beginning to know one another, we introduce ourselves to one another, some of the questions we normally ask each other are like, well, where do you live? Or what do you do for work? Or, you know, that sort of thing. And wouldn't it be interesting if we began to talk to each other and said, well, who are you? And our answer was what? I'm a child of God. Wow. Wouldn't, where did that take you back? Why does it take us back? You know, this shouldn't. This is who we are. It says, and so we are. We are children of God. Children of the Creator. We're not just His creation if we're born again. That's true, we are. We're now in His family. We've been brought into His family. We're His sons and daughters. That's an amazing thing to think about, to realize as a child of God. If you read uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, he spends a whole chapter on adoption and lifts that doctrine high. And something you can never lose, you are adopted child of God. This is the choice of becoming, this, this choice of becoming a child of the Father was not ultimately a choice that we made for ourselves. It was the will of, it was the will of God. It wasn't the will of man, ultimately, 1 John 1, 12. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It wasn't man's choice. It wasn't our choice. It was the choice of the great love of the Father made over all who trust in Christ. He calls us children. And from that relationship, He blesses us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Him When? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. How did He do that? In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. For what reason? According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He hath blessed us in the Beloved. Did you notice what brought about our adoption as children of God? God's choice. That makes it even greater, this love, right? Doesn't it? He chose you. Did you notice when the choice was made? Well, certainly you couldn't have made it before the foundation of the world, but God did. Did you also notice what purpose the Father has for all whom He adopts and calls? That you would be holy and blameless. There's where the confidence comes in. When He adopts you, He's going to do something with you. He's going to get you prepared for heaven. And that's the point that John is making. Divine adoption or childhood equals holiness, blamelessness in Christ. Let us see this truth. That's the point. See it for what it is. Let your heart soak in it. Set your hope on it. Our Father's adoption is not purposeless or without effect. He will call you his children, and treat you like his children. That's who you are. He takes us, changes us, makes us like the Son. No exceptions. He does this for every one of his adopted children. That's our hope of growing in righteousness. That's our hope of being ready for the coming of Christ. And notice the rest of this verse. See what your Father's adopting love, not only what it's like, but what it's doing. You can see that in the second half, the second sentence of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. That's an interesting way of putting a lot in a few words. What is John saying there? The end of the verse 1 describes the change that the Father's love makes on us. The world doesn't know us. The world, right? Those who love darkness rather than light, those who desire to live by those fleshly desires, what they see, what they feel, and what brings them the praise of others. Right? That's the world system John describes. The world doesn't know children of God. Don't recognize us anymore as one of their own. Why not? Because we're not in their family anymore. We do not have the same spiritual nature that we had before our new birth. We don't have the same spiritual childhood that we had before our new calling and adoption. 
God adopted us out of the family of the devil or the world, as the text tells us. The the family that loves sin. God's love moves us from the family of the devil and births, births us in his own family. You can hear this in 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He's changing us, right? Whoever makes a practice of sinning, loves it, covers it, continues in it, provides for it, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God has appeared, why? Why did did the Son of God appear to us incarnate? Was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And now God is making us to look and live in this world like someone else in his family. Who is that? Jesus. You see it? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Who's Him? Jesus. John 1, 9-11. The light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came into His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Remember those verses? So the world does not know us anymore as one of their own, because... We are living more and more the way Jesus did. That's God's doing. And that change is all is happening on account of the Father's adopting love. This is the loving purpose that God the Father has called us to as His children. So, question for you in this this morning. Do you mind that the world doesn't love you anymore? That's the way it's going to be when you're adopted by God. Do you mind that your old friends don't click with you the way they used to? That's what Jesus tells us is going to happen. That's going to be painful, isn't it? It's going to be grievous. But it's, that's what must happen. It will happen. Do you mind that the world may even become distant and cold and even hostile towards you? Jesus promised that would be the case. John 15 and John 16 and Matthew 10. Even the gospel division would happen within earthly families. That's what he said. Some of us have experienced that far more than others. And we need to encourage one another in that. And exhort each other. And remind each other of God's love. Would you rather be loved by the world or loved by God? It's not a bad exchange, is it? Not in the big picture of things. It's really not. It doesn't really matter what the world, that the world doesn't recognize us as its own when God the Father has called us His children and recognizes us as His own. And beyond that, the Father gives us a brand new loving family called the body of Christ through whom He shares His own great love. And that's a great exchange. And that, that, puts, a, that puts a calling on all of us to love one another so that when we feel the rejection from the world, We know that we have others who love us in Christ. That's important. Our Father will take every one of His children and produce and develop the fruit of Christ's likeness in them. Guaranteed. That's the promise to those He adopts and calls as sons and daughters. Now, our final point this morning. We may have confidence at the coming of Christ because of the purifying power of the new birth, because of the purifying power of God's adopting love. And all that happens to you because of your union with Christ. But, what about the coming? If we're going to have confidence at Christ's coming, we also need to know that we will not be left unfinished. Right? Think about that. We know we're in process. We know it's begun with the new birth. It's continuing with with the adopting love of God. But are we going to be an absolute wreck, mess, 
in shame when Christ returns. That's the last piece of where John goes. We will not be left unfinished in the process of change at the coming of Christ. I want you to know that. Do you know that? You will not be left unfinished. Here's one more piece of good news to give you confidence at Christ's return. Number three, finally, hope in the purifying power of Christ's appearing. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. You see this here? Everyone who hopes in Him like this. That's the invitation, really. Hope in Him like this. Hope in Him. Remember that new birth. Be assured of it. Spend time looking at your Father's adopting love for you. Be confident in that. And then, hope in this final great act of transformation that will happen when Christ returns. Take hope in the fact that we are not what we were. We are God's children now. That's not who we used to be. We're God's children now. And then, take hope in the fact that we are not what we are going to be. What we will be has not yet appeared. Don't think, think of it this way, don't think that when you look the Lord Jesus Christ in the eyes at His appearing, appearing, that you're going to be like what you are right now. You won't be. You'll be totally changed. Completely changed. Completely perfect. Let's follow His thought here. Beloved, again, it's a great, great title for you as children of God. You're enjoying God's adopting, saving, changing, calling love through that union with Christ. You are God's children now by love, by choice, by grace, by calling, not by your performance, not by your work, not by your doing. The work of transformation has begun. We are, it has not yet appeared, but what we will be has not yet appeared. You can't see who you're going to be yet. Not right now. All we see is who we are right now in this fallen body of humanness. Right? Just like Paul describes in Romans 7. Still loaded with sinful fleshly desires. Did you have any today? Sinful fleshly desires. Sinful fleshly words. Actions. I bet they happened this morning in the last two hours that we were here. Many of them. Right? But we're born of God. We're we're children of God. The Father's making us like His Son. But we're so far from what we are going to be and what we long to be. That's why sometimes we shrink away in shame at the thought of Christ's return and omniscient gaze, right? Christ is going to find me just the way I am and this is going to be horrible. I have so far yet to go. But right now, we are not yet who we're going to be. Remember that. You're not yet who you're going to be. God is not done in the process of loving change. In fact, listen to this. The most powerful act of His love that will change your experience of Christ-likeness is yet to come. We enjoy times of, of studying God's Word and we grow and different trials bring us through periods of growth and processes of change and we come through those and we look back and we see change happen, right? We see change in one another. It's, it's variant, right? Sanctification goes up and down, but it's always going toward Christ-likeness. But we've never experienced anything even close yet to what the coming of Jesus Christ is going to do for us. Not even close. The most powerful act of God in Christ to change our position of righteousness is called justification. Justification happens at the new birth when our Father declares us righteous by canceling our sin through Christ's death on the cross and crediting to us the righteous life of Christ. But the most powerful act of God in Christ to change our practice, our experience of righteousness, isn't our sanctification. It's our glorification at the second coming of Christ. 
How can I say this? For the child of God, the second coming of Christ, listen, is not an occasion for punishment to be dreaded. Did you know that? Please hear this. It's, it's a moment of revelation to be joyfully anticipated because it will immediately affect your perfect likeness to Christ. That's verse 2. We know that when He appears, when He is unveiled in all His glory, you will be like Him because you will see Him just as He is. His coming and appearing will finish the process of His righteousness within us. Just as, just as seeing Jesus in the Word by the Spirit changes us from one level of glory to the next, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, so seeing the physical presence of Jesus changes us to full and complete Christ-likeness and perfect righteousness. That's the thrilling power of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to appear. He's going to be revealed in full glory before our eyes. And when we see Jesus, it's not going to be about us scrambling to finish things up like we do before a guest is coming on Thanksgiving Day. That's not it. He will immediately and completely finish our change into His likeness. When we see Him, we will see Jesus just as He is. That powerful display of glory will be before our eyes. And here's the thing, again, it'll have nothing to do with punishment. Do you hear that? It'll have nothing to do with punishment and everything to do with immediate perfection. Where do I get this idea? Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. So many people think that as Christians, that when Christ comes, it's about punishment. It's about running me down for all the things I didn't do and all the things that I, that I shouldn't have done. Listen to this. Romans 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. I like how Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians 1.10. When He comes on that day to be glorified, in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. Child of God, for you, the coming of Christ is not a day of terror and judgment. It's a day of the greatest salvation, the greatest joy you've ever experienced. Take hope in that. Take hope in the power of the purification of the coming of Christ. So, dear ones, be assured of the purifying power of the new birth. It began the practice of righteousness in you. See the powerful, the purifying power of God's adopting love. It continues and develops the practice of God's righteousness in you. And hope in the purifying power of Christ's return. It will complete the experience of God's righteousness in you. And all that's yours because of your union with Christ. Abide in Him. Right? He is your source of confidence at His appearing. Keep on actively trusting. That, this is how you do it. This is how John tells us to do this so that we can overcome shame in our hearts and be confident at His return. In closing this morning, as you think of the appearing of Christ at His coming, are you filled with a sense of shame or confidence? If you're united with Christ, then you've been born of God and adopted. You don't have to have any shame. If you're confident, it's because you've been assured of these truths. And if you're confident, it's because you're seeing, you're spending time seeing the Father's adopting love. You are hoping in Christ's return. So keep on doing that. Keep on abiding in Christ in that active way. And rest in your union with Him. Depend upon the Father to complete you. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That's your confidence. That's your hope. Now there's one more thing that John brings at the end there that maybe you thought I missed. I thought I missed it too. 
Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Are you hoping in, the, in Christ like this text? Okay, yes, I am. All right, we're, we're hoping in Christ like this. Now, then by the grace of God, you are called to spend the spiritual energy that he gives to you through Christ to work with him in the process of purification and spiritual productivity. Everyone who thus hopes, who hopes like that, doesn't, doesn't sit around, right? And, well, I hope this all works out. No, they keep abiding in Christ, trusting that God will do all of this, and at the same time, purifies himself, seeks to become like Christ with everything, every power that God gives him. That's why the Apostle Paul said, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work that out with fear and trembling. If you hope in Christ, as John described, you'll desire to keep on turning from sin, keep on trusting in his grace, growing in Christ like us until he comes. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? But my dear friend, maybe as you've listened to this, you can say, I don't have that confidence. I do not have the confidence for the appearing of Christ that I will stand righteous in the sight of God, that I'll be accepted when he returns. And I want to say to you this morning that that's likely because of one of two reasons. The first reason, it may be that you are a child of God, but you have not yet been assured of the powerful purifying effect of the new birth. Are you assured of that? Look to the text and gain assurance. If you're born again, God will make you righteous. Maybe you've not been spending time seeing the Father's adopting love and its saving effect on your life. I would invite you to abide in it, to look to the power of God's saving love. Get to know your heavenly Father better and how He saves you through His love. Maybe you haven't been hoping in the power of Christ's return. You've, you've seen the second coming as a day of judgment that you're dreading. Look at, at it for what it is and be assured. Abide in Him. Feed your faith. And trust in the love of God for you. But secondly, others of you, you may say, I, I have a lack of confidence. Maybe it's that you're not abiding in Christ at all. Think about that. You're not in union with Him at all. You've not yet been born of God. You've not yet been adopted. So you can, how could you have any confidence at the coming of Christ? You think that it's just going to be a day of judgment and punishment for your sin. And if you're not in Christ, you're exactly right. Right? John 15 actually says that. Those who are not His branches will be gathered cast into the fire and burned, John 15 says. I don't want that for you. Do you want that? You don't have to. I say to you, come to Christ. If you don't have confidence at the coming of Christ, come to Christ as you are. Receive Him as He is, Savior and Lord. You see, you need His righteousness because you're not righteous. You may receive His righteousness by faith. You need His death because you're a sinner who has offended God. And God as a good and righteous judge must punish sin. But you can receive the atonement of Christ on the cross. That can be for you if you receive it by faith. You need the power of His resurrection to give you a new spiritual life so that you can begin to call God your Father and grow in confidence by receiving His love. Come to Christ See your desperate need for what it is. Understand the wrath and judgment of God against your sin, but also see His mercy and His love. Those are the two things that would drive you to Christ. Seeing what your sin is. Seeing God's response to it, but also His call of mercy and grace and love. He wants, to, he wants you to know Him as a child. So I, I appeal to you today, if you don't have confidence and that's your place, come to Christ. 
Just like, just like John wrote, all who did receive Him, Christ, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you want to be born of God, if you want that, and you, and you want to be adopted in His family, and you see Christ for who He is, and want to trust in Him for, re, for redemption from your sin, you may, you may do that today if that's what you want. Christ calls all who would come to Him and promises them that he will raise them up on the last day and give them eternal life. And then you can have confidence at the appearing of Christ and rejoice at his coming. Would you stand with me? Let's close and pray together. Our Father in heaven, we look at this text and we see in a, in a, in a large view the work of salvation what you have done for your children in the past, what you are doing for them in the present, what you will do in the future. And all of that we are to remain in. We are to trust. To trust in Christ and to learn of Him. I pray that you would teach our hearts to be confident because of these gospel truths. To be confident you're coming. We need that so that we can long for it. And wait for it. And pray for it. So that it would be ever on our mind. You will finish the work you started, Father. Thank you for that. And Father, if there is someone here this morning who, who has been shaken at these words because they don't have the confidence that they would like to have at your return, please draw them to Jesus. Please help them to see that they can have eternal life in your name. We pray in your name. Amen.